Today's show is sponsored by Strong DM. Transitioning your team to work from home? Managing a gazillion SSH keys, database passwords, and Kubernetes certs? Meet Strong DM. Manage and audit access to servers, databases, and Kubernetes clusters, no matter where your employees are. With StrongDM, easily extend your identity provider to manage infrastructure access. Automate onboarding, offboarding, and moving people within roles. Grant temporary access that automatically expires to on-call teams. Admins get full auditability into anything anyone does, when they connect, what queries they run, what commands are typed. It's full visibility into everything. For SSH, RDP, and Kubernetes, that means video replays. For databases, it's a single unified query log across all database management systems. StrongDM is used by companies like Hearst, Peloton, Betterment, Greenhouse, and SoFi to manage access. It's more control and less hassle. StrongDM, manage and audit remote access to infrastructure. Start your free 14-day trial today at strongdm.com gtc. Welcome to episode 181 of Greater Than Code. I am one of your hosts, Jamie Hampton, and I'm here with one of your other wonderful hosts, Karina Zona. And I'm here with John Sowers. It's Karina. I'm here with our guest, Aaron Aldrich. He is a developer advocate at LaunchDarkly, founding organizer of DevOps Days Hartford and frequent DevOps Days organizer and participant all over. When not talking about DevOps and resilience engineering, you can find him talking about mental health with osmihelp.org or running emotional intelligence workshops with me at emotionalapi.com. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Hi, thanks for having me. So we like to kick things off with the same question for everyone. Uh, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? The same two questions, right? It is two questions. Um, I, I thought about this one because I always am wondering, it's like, how do you judge yourself on superpowers? But I think if I, I had to answer it, I have to go with what I think my wife would say about it is that... I've kind of got this ability to just relate to a lot of people on, on any level. Like I think it's a side effect of like having way too many hobbies, which is probably some other side effect of ADHD. But because I'm just interested and curious about so many different things, like I can always hold a conversation with just about anyone on like whatever topic they're into. And uh, it's like, oh, I'm going to go make friends with this group now. And oh, hey, what are you guys into? Let's be friends too. Uh, so I think that might be my superpower. That I've experienced like this about you. <laughs> Well, good. There's at least two of us that agree then, so it must be it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I acquired it through practice or through like coping mechanisms of having way too many hobbies. But yeah, I mean, aside from the obvious ways that that having that superpower would affect your life, like what are some of the like less obvious ways that would it has affected you? Maybe I'll start with the obvious ways that it, that it works out for me. Like one of the benefits, especially being in in DevRel, that's super useful. Like I've managed to turn that ability into like a solid career path because it's it's easy to connect with folks on on different levels, and uh, you know, especially for uh, a career that's like largely about trying to empathize with multiple groups at the same time. Uh, it helps that I can can do that. I can relate to folks that are both on the development side and on the business side and like understand these the push and pull that, that sits somewhere in the middle, which is really useful. Uh, it's definitely gotten me in more places than I've expected. Like I've told this story before, but one of my favorite, like, I don't know how I ended up in this room moments was uh, a number of years ago, I had been running uh, some of the DevOps meetups locally in, in Connecticut at the time. 
and happened to know some of the folks at uh, Optum that were there and happened to know Nathan Harvey from Chef at the time, now is, is at Google. And Chef happened to be doing like this on, you know, uh, intro to Chef Day for Optum, right? Like they had all the engineers come down and, and the thing and managed to get invites from both groups of like the exec buy-in at Optum and from Nathan Harvey. We were like, sure, why don't you come down? So just as someone completely unaffiliated with both of these, I got to hang out in like the executive roundtable room, like just seeing how this company does this thing and like weighing in on like DevOps ideas and, and topics from there and uh, yeah, it was a really funny moment of like, how did I end up in this room at this time while being associated with nobody whatsoever? Uh, and it was just kind of a, it was kind of a fun moment to be there. Sometimes I like to ask, like, how would you recommend other people kind of tap into your superpower? And you mentioned that like having a lot of hobbies. Can you tell me more about that? Like, what hobbies do you have, and how did this lead lead you to meeting people? Uh-huh. Half it's like just say yes to trying new things, right? Like anytime <laughs> you have an opportunity to do something, you'd be like, yeah, sure, why not? Trying to think of when I was younger, I had uh, an older cousin who I really looked up to who was always into, like, he had a Nintendo before I had anything. So it was like, oh, sweet. So I got into video games with him and, like, he was way into board gaming. So I got way into board gaming from that. You know, I happened to have some musical abilities run in the family. So, like, I took music lessons really young. So I got way into music and, like, I play electric bass primarily right now. Consequently, being into music, it's like, oh, so I can connect with folks who are in the like music appreciation realm as well as folks that are playing instruments and having just this eclectic taste in all, all music as well, because I've just found this like, I just try things out and appreciate it for what it is and, and at its own level. You know, anything that allows anyone to nerd out to some extent, I really enjoy. So it's like even like cars, right? Like there's this super technical and mechanical concept that happens there. It's like, oh, I can totally nerd out about that too. Like this is super interesting. All the like mechanics and physics that go into making this work and like how this works. And so, yeah, I'll hang out with the gearheads and talk about that. And then I'll go hang out with like the programming crew and figure out like distributed systems and how these all connect and then like go hang out with all the musicians and nerd out about like the key changes and how this is working. So yeah, I just love to nerd out about everything, especially if there's some like technical aspect to it, which it turns that. out is like everything, like everything has a technical aspect to it. I love the general appreciation of like what people are interested in because people love it when you're, when you want to hear them talk about whatever the thing is that they're really interested in. Oh, absolutely. I think that's, that's <laughs> my favorite part about it is like, watching other people get really excited to tell you about something is one of my favorite things too. And so it's like, yeah, oh yeah, I want to be excited too. Like, tell me about it. (laughs) You mentioned earlier that everything has a technical aspect. And this is really interesting to me because I've met a fair number of musicians in the industry. So for you, what is the connection between music and that technical aspect and programming and the obvious technical aspects of that? Or maybe non-obvious, but I mean, what? how do they connect for you? When I was growing up doing music, I, I had the opportunity to do like music theory classes as well. And I think that's where it really starts to show up because that's like you know, the computer science, right? This is all the, and it's all theory because it's all essentially Western music oriented and centered around, you know, what we find appealing in music and how sounds work together. It's really interesting because it's all this learned theory on top of a science that's underneath it, but largely like what appeals to people's ears. And it's just this really interesting technical framework that you can lay on top of this art that that happens on top, right? Like the actual playing is an entirely different and sometimes even separate thing from the theory that's underneath it, even though that's all in place. Uh, and I think a lot of that, you know, it's very similar to, to coding, right? Like there's this deep computer science 
theory and knowledge of how does sand (laughs) make pictures on your screen, right? But coding all exists on top of it. It's all this other work that we put on on top and all this other design that we put into it and, you know, choose what those pictures want to look like and choose how the code goes through and how the numbers get crunched. That's all propped up by this computer science theory that's underneath it. And I think music's a lot of the same way too. Um, You can hang out with a bunch of friends in your garage and make some sounds that sound cool to you without really understanding what's going on underneath it. And you can do deep, deep study and like, have these crazy, uh, you know, skill pieces. Like if you think of the the jazz music, especially like the uh, bebop era of like John Coltrane's Giant Steps, which was entirely like a technical show-off piece of like, can I make music that switches through this many keys sound good? Right? Like that's largely the question that he started with and then wrote this amazing song out of it that like has become a jazz standard for like, if you can play this, <laughs> like you've done pretty okay. So I, I think where it diverges is there's like, Music often happens like you can record it and play it back, right? And that's sort of a very programmatic aspect of it, of like you you initiate a program and you can play it back. Or or sheet music, right, is like you write this program, but then humans have to interpret it and play it back. And I think that's where, you know, the artistry of music shines, where like computers always repeated by machines that repeat the same steps over and over again, where music is often interpreted and have these live moments where you can add additional levels of creativity, right? That can shine in that moment. If you know what, I'm feeling differently today than I was yesterday. So I'm going to play the song differently today than I did yesterday, where like computer programming isn't really affected by the mood of the computer, which is probably good. Like computers are terrible enough already to not have like bad days. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine if your computer was just like not feeling up to it today? <laughs> I would be like big mood, but like, please. <laughs> Whatever the computer equivalent is to like hiding in its room, listening to the Smith. So like, I don't know what that, that version is, but I don't know. Mine definitely has moods. I mean, like sometimes the fan will go on and never turn off. And it's a very unhappy day for a little computer. That's true. I, I guess I mean, on the macro scale, right? Like for the most part, our Kubernetes clusters don't have moods. <laughs> That's good. Although that you bring up an interesting parallel to some of the other things we've talked about on the show about like computer systems being socio-technical systems and how like the computers do the same thing every time just like a musical instrument will play the same note if you strike it the same way but the people need to work together to do all the right things together in the right order and so like the the same sort of dynamics come into play of you know organizing a, a jazz trio as it is organizing a dev team to run your kubernetes cluster like you've got to have the team orchestrated in the, to match up with the with the computer. Yeah, that uh, actually that parallel goes goes a lot deeper and was brought up recently actually as I think about it at Redeploy conference last year, which is a resilience engineering conference run by uh, Jay Paul Reed. There was one of the talks was was really about was actually comparing the resilience of a musical group and like how does that actually work? Like how does this connect and why can they do things like mistakes happen all the time in live music? But it just works, right? Like things go wrong all the time, but it just keeps playing and it keeps rolling. And like, what makes a highly skilled group differently from one that can't recover from that? You know, what's the difference from a group that they start in the wrong tempo or the wrong key and they fall apart, have to completely stop and restart versus someone who can kind of fudge through it and and all that. And so a lot of it has to do with like the concept of common ground in a team. So understanding the same language and understanding the same context, understanding the same terminologies and how each other interact and and who each other are goes a long way to making like high performance, resilient teams. So, you know, the jazz trio that like both deeply understands the work that they do and how each other play are the kind of people that can be like, 
hey, uh, we're going to play this song in this key, except I'm going to change up the chorus. Just follow me. Right. Like they can have that conversation. Everyone can come along and, and play it and they can they can make music out of it where, you know, again, like that, the garage band instance. Right. Like you just get together for the, the first time in the garage band. Like you kind of have to play the song as it's written or everyone kind of gets lost and doesn't really know how to get out of that space where they've kind of screwed it up. And so, you know, different aspects of how you recover from that are are valid. Right. Like in that case, like, yeah, OK, let's stop. Let's go back to the beginning and try it again until we, we build that that context. So, yeah, that's a, a really interesting comparison. Uh, and it came up. Uh, so yesterday was the failover conference, uh, failover conf from from Gremlin. It was supposed to be Chaos Conf, but obviously they're not doing a live conference, so they renamed it Failover Conf, which is just a brilliant move for a chaos engineering company. And there was a, a couple conversations about resilience, both from Amy Toby and J. Paul Reed. Kind of uh, lock noted the whole event, and uh, there was conversation about common ground there as, as well, right? Like having strong common ground on your teams, build more resilient teams, right? You're able to have those conversations, you know, like strong common ground kind of looks like the, Hey, so I finally told so-and-so, well, what do they say? Oh uh, yeah. I thought they would react that way. You know, that kind of half conversation you can have with a teammate that like you're really close with where you never really complete the sentence, but you both perfectly communicate what's going on and know what's happening. Like that shows like really strong common ground uh, in that, that group. And they're going to be really able to adapt and deal with change and deal with surprise really well because they understand both their, their expertise zone and each other really well. They know how to, how to, how to change with that. Um, and kind of one of the things that Paul was saying at the, the end was there's a sort of this interesting indicator of teams that move quickly and like iterate fast on software. So those people that are doing, you know, 10 plus deploys a day, that's kind of an interesting indicator for adaptive capacity because they're used to changing constantly and having the ability to roll back and having the ability to adjust with like, oh, that deploy was bad. Okay, let's fix it. Uh, and doing that sort of thing. So these teams are the ones that are doing actually really well right now, <laughs> as we're all kind of dealing with like constant crisis. Uh, those are the teams that are recovering and pivoting and, and you know, all right, we're working from home now. Cool. No problem. Right. They're the ones dealing with that um, where other teams that maybe have less common ground, like they don't communicate as well, uh, have to spend a lot of cycles trying to rebuild and maintain that common ground that they used to have by being co-located or sharing information in a different way that now doesn't work because we're all at home. Do you have any uh, ways that you that are good to increase that common ground and that like ease of communication amongst the team? I think it's different depending on your scenarios. Like right now, the answer is probably really different than it would have been three months ago. I think right now, the key aspect is a lot of the passive communication that would have occurred in an office, a lot of the sort of tribal knowledge that passes just by interacting has to be really purposeful, especially if it, so I'm assuming that these teams were co-located and now like working remote, right? That's kind of the assumption for that sentence. But assuming that's true, and I think for a lot of people it is, there's a lot more intentionality about communication, right? You have to purposely initiate conversation. You have to purposely share knowledge uh, rather than it just sort of happening every time you, you encounter it. But I think generally it's a lot of working together, right? Like working on things together rather than separately working on different bits and then assembling them all at the end. Uh, I think it's teams that they look to deal with iteration and change. And I, it's a lot less bureaucratic oversight and a lot more the power dynamic shifted towards the people actually doing work at the sharp end, as we would talk about in that that context, right? Um, when they have a lot of autonomy to work together and make decisions at that point, you can start to build that common ground rather than if all of your decisions are always made up the chain and passed down, and you're just doing what you're told. Like you really don't have that opportunity as a team to connect and make decisions and understand each other and and get that deep expertise. That's a really good perspective on it. I hadn't thought about it in those particular terms, but it makes a lot of sense that like 
like the team is given work and then the team figures out how to do the work versus individuals are given individual work and then go off and do it. Like you get a very different team out of that process. I really like thinking about it like that. Yeah. And I think it's a, a lot of empowering people to work in a way that makes sense to them in a way that they solve the problem, right? And like letting everyone kind of shine in their individual corners is, is a big aspect to it. It was actually a, a great, sort of a great analogy that Ken Muggridge from ThoughtWorks was talking to me a bit. He had a, he had a talk once that was something like everything I need to know about DevOps I learned in the Marine Corps or something like that. And uh, there's a really interesting concept. Like you think of, especially military as this very like command and control, but it, it's sort of the opposite. It's actually more like the way that decisions are passed down are like varying grades of, of resolution, right? So like by the time, you know, higher up might be like, hey, we need to control this like city. And then like a little bit further down, all right, we need to get this sector. And then it's like, okay, eventually it gets to a squad. that's like, hey, we need to control that building, right? So whatever you do, like you need to take that building. I don't care how you do it, right? That's all left up to the people making that decision. The people that know how each other work, they know their strengths and their weaknesses, the tools they're working with, they've trained together and like they can rely on each other. So it's very little like do it specifically this way and very much like here's the objective we need you to complete do it in the way that makes the most sense to you that ties in very a lot with uh david marquette uh turn the ship around book which i have not read yet but i really would like to get to reading because I, i think that's his largely his thesis is that like the top level gives the direction and then everyone else figures out how to make the direction happen at the varying levels of resolution and i like that Right. The people at who are actually doing the work make those last second decisions and they're empowered to be like, hey, this isn't working. We need to do something different to achieve that same goal rather than someone saying, hey, I need you to, I don't know. <laughs> I'm terrible at coming with examples off the top of my head, but like rather than giving a specific like, I need you to do this specific task. And then you're like, hey, this task isn't working, but that's my job. So I guess I'm going to keep doing it. Right. Like giving the objective instead and letting you determine how to get there uh, makes a big difference. And and lets you respond to surprises uh, much better. Were there any of your highlights at uh, FailoverConf that really stood out for you? Heidi Waterhouse did a, a great talk that was uh, Y2K and other disappointing disasters, which I think is really relevant right now too. And it's one of those thoughts like, if you didn't work on Y2K, it was sort of a, a whole bunch of nothing, right? There was a lot of worry that the world was going to end and then just it didn't, right? Like everything just sort of continued to work. But like the folks that were sysadmins and programmers at the time, like the reason it all just worked is because they spent about a year and a half like working overtime to make sure that it would, right? There was an incredible amount of prep work. There was tons of work that was going on worldwide, like to make sure that the clocks didn't think it was 1900, right? To make sure you didn't gain negative bank interests over a, a century. Um, like that was a ton of work that went on behind the scenes that if you weren't part of it, yeah, it felt like we, we over talked this disaster and how like. Uh, we were worried about nothing. And that ties in, you know, right to now. Like, and the the sentiment she left with was like, it, I don't know if she left with this, but it was part of it was like, I hope when we start to go back to normal now and we feel like, hey, we spent a lot of time indoors for no reason. Like this was a whole bunch of nothing. Like everybody's fine. Like, yeah, like remember that that's because we did all the work, not like in spite of it, right? Because we're doing all this effort now to make sure this disease doesn't spread rapidly like that's why it's going to be okay later. Um, and there were a couple of other interesting bits too. There was some really interesting conversations from the folks at Honeycomb about, you know, modern observability, which I've seen it dozens of times. And all of those talks are so content rich. I can only like grasp a corner of it at a time. Cause it's like deep theory about observability as well as like the overall concepts that I always have to like race to keep up with. 
And there were some other good, uh, interesting points of like, how do we do this with serverless, which was super interesting, because I think that one's pretty apt as well. We've talked a few times on the show recently about kind of the idea of virtual conferences and how that's kind of changing the scene. But I don't think any of the people who are involved in those conversations had actually like been to one yet since this happened. So I'm curious about your general thoughts on like, how did it go at FailoverConf? And like, how did people feel about it? How was there like a lot of interaction? Or was that an issue? Like, what was just kind of your take on it from being there? Probably went well. Right. So like the overall sentiment, I think it was a good conference. I think they did a good job uh, assembling the content that they did and, and putting on the actual event. There was a Slack team. What do you call them? Slack group. There was a Slack <laughs> for the conference. They did a good job of driving people towards that. And I think there were like 2000 people that had joined it by the time uh, the conference was over. Uh, and they did a good job of having some bots that kind of when you joined, they messaged you and were like, hey, here are the relevant channels you're going to care about. Uh, here are some things to look out for, which I thought was really good. They had like a hallway track uh, Slack channel, which was kind of neat, right? Because everyone would join in the hallway track. You can kind of have this group chat about whatever that was there. The really nice engagement aspect to it is each talk had its own Q&A channel. So after every talk, all the questions that kind of came through during the talk, which was actually kind of a neat aspect of virtual conferences, is like in a real conference, you, you might have a question and then you kind of forget it by the end unless you write it down or you have to go up and like physically stand in front of the room for 10 minutes to talk to the speaker. Here it was like as the talk was going on, people are just writing down questions in like the Q&A channel. So like by the time it's done, there's a half dozen questions already ready for the speaker to answer and curated by the conference. So that was really nice. Um, but there would be, you know, like a 20 minute, half hour talk. And then there would be, you know, probably another 10, 15 minutes of conversation that would happen in the, the Slack channel about that talk. So yeah, I found that engagement was really nice and that kept people going with it. There's definitely some challenges, I think, of virtual conferences as well. Like I didn't run into as many people, right? Like you didn't really run into someone and have that conversation. You kind of had to, you know, find someone in Slack or happen to be in the same channel and connect on something. Like they often had like five minute breaks between talks or like maybe it was like a 10 minute break, but part of it was this five minute icebreaker and it was this other web app like icebreaker web app that would introduce it would it would randomly pair people through video and then you'd have like a five minute conversation and there were like little conversation prompt cards which was kind of neat uh except that because it was during the break time it's like that was the time i wanted to not be looking at my screen <laughs> and so it was like five minutes was both not really enough time to have any meaningful conversation with a person and also not enough time for me to get away from my computer and stop staring at a screen to be able to like go through a whole day of conferencing in front of a computer um it's a little bit like watching you know tv all day you're just kind of like fatigued by the end of like the constant like oh i've been staring at a screen for like eight hours so that was i think some of the challenge uh, of it there but yeah, it was nice. I, I think it went largely well. I know I've talked to them. Um, there are some challenges with like technical issues also, right? You know, someone who's, it's just going to happen. Like the, the number of people and microphones and internet connections involved, like someone's going to have a challenge. So I think one of the, the thoughts, even from the organizers were like, yeah, in hindsight, I think we would have pre-recorded the talks and just played the talk back and have the speakers there for the Q&A sessions. And I think I would have really liked to see maybe even slightly shorter talks and like an actual or fewer talks and like an actual live Q&A, like have the speakers, you know, doing that live over the microphone and answer some of the questions and be able to talk about it would have been kind of cool. But yeah, overall, great. Uh, there was even like that small group of people that hung around in the hallway track after that started the Zoom chat, you know, like that group of like a dozen of you that go to the pub afterwards and then like hang out. So like that all worked out well, which is cool. 
That's really cool to hear. I think it's interesting how people are, they're like different virtual conferences are trying different things and like seeing what works. Uh, There's one that I'm attending next Thursday, uh, April 30th. It'll already happen by the time this comes out, but it's called Deserted Island DevOps and they're hosting it in Animal Crossing. (laughs) Oh, you're staying there. Yes. I can't wait. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm I'm pumped about it too. I'm like, this is the right amount of like serious and silly that I feel like the situation calls for right now. I totally agree. If this is what we're doing, this is what we're doing. <laughs> right. We're just buying in the whole way. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited to see how that one goes too. Like there's some fun little aspects of that, like because it's happening in this other game world, which I realized the other day I don't have language to talk about the presence of avatars in digital realm. I was like, we're all going to be physically, well, not physically, I guess we'll all be digitally, we'll all be virtually on the island. I don't know how to talk about this, but our avatars will be on the island together. (laughs) I visited Aaron's island the other day. It was very exciting. There's a lot of Animal Crossing happening all over the place. I think it's (laughs) like everyone's trying to be together while also being (laughs) completely separate. Like, well, at least our characters can be next to each other. It feels better than I would have expected it to feel. Like, if you had said that to me, like, right. I would have been like, that's not the same as being with someone. Like, it's not, but, like, it feels nice in a way that I didn't expect to be like, look, me and Aaron are running around together on the island. I agree. Yeah, I don't know what it is about that, but it does, like, satisfy that same craving just a little bit. Like, not quite as good. It's somewhere between video calls and real life and, you know, whatever mm-hmm. else. But, yeah, it is kind of fun. It's kind of neat with, like, the voice chat, too. Nintendo app, the most convoluted way to do voice chat ever. But if you have the app on your phone, you can also do voice chat with other people who also have the app on their phone, um, which is actually kind of cool when you're all on an island together, like chatting over this thing and like standing next to each other and, and everything else. It builds a little bit more of that uh, that connection than I would have thought. I think the thing I like about it more than, I mean, it's different than like Zoom, like a Zoom group Right, right. or whatever but I think one of the things I really like about it over that is that there's an aspect of like just dropping by. Like I yeah, just when yeah, I yeah. when I visited Aaron's Island, I just saw that it was open and I went there. I didn't like tell him I was coming and then I was there and it felt like, oh, someone just dropped by. Yeah, I agree. There's there's a nice <laughs> thing to that too. And there's and something a little bit different about the like being able to move around that feels a little bit different than this video call that's like, oh, we're just staring at each other on a TV screen in space, <laughs> as opposed to like, oh, hey, would you like some of my fruit? Would you care to sit on this bench that I made? Right? Like it's a little <laughs> bit a little bit closer to real life. After this is over and someone comes over to my house, that's what I'm going to say. Would you like some fruit? Would you like to sit on my bench? Would you care to tour the museum that I have stocked all by myself for some reason? <laughs> One thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was, well, you mentioned ADHD earlier and how like that may feed into what you know your superpower ends up being. And I know you've talked about various um, conference talks about it in the past. And so I'm curious as to how you see that, like, impacting the way you interact with people, the way, like, how it impacts your career and your, like, basically all of your superpower stuff. It sort of goes both, well, like any, I think, neurodiversity aspects, it goes both ways. Like, there's moments where you can really lean in and double down and it's it feels like a superpower. And then there's other times where it is just the thing preventing you from being useful. And so early on in my career, especially doing traditional sysad ops work, like, it's really great for interrupt-driven work like that when it's like, oh, I got a ticket. I'm going to do a thing. Oh, I've got alerts. I've got to go fix a thing right now. So, like, firefighting is is a great skill, and, and it allows me to be really adaptable and really responsive in the moment uh, because I can both focus on the thing that is causing a lot of stimulus at the time uh, really well. Like, that's the hyper-focus aspect of ADHD. It's like, hey, this thing's really important and shiny. Like, great. I can I can dive down that, that and, and focus on it for, you know, 
12 hours and not even think about it, right? Like I can, I can do the remediation aspect of it. The challenge as I've switched that career and moved from like that actual individual contributor ops, while well, I'm still an individual contributor, but like moving more towards, you know, DevRel and like interacting with people and like, now my job is like, hey, can you write this talk that's due in two weeks? And it's like, oh, that is like the thing that I've always struggled with in school is like that project due two weeks from now. It's like started, you know, midnight the night before and you stay up all night and you do, you know, somehow manage to fit two weeks worth of work in about five hours and you like print the project as you're running out to go to school, right? There's that aspect that I have to fight against as well, which is the challenges that the ADHD has with you know, general executive function and, and motivation and focus on that sort of thing. I think because ADHD folks, uh, or for me anyway, I, I guess I won't speak on other people's experience. I can only speak to mine. So some aspect of it is just advanced forms of coping mechanisms. Like it's paying attention to things in a conversation is a hard thing to do. And so there's a lot of coping mechanism of both being able to trick yourself and like, like being interested in all these things, like helps me focus on everything that's going on. And so part of it is, you know, genuine interest in, in the thing that's there, but uh, I can tie my interest into someone else's like excitement and that sort of thing. And like that helps me focus on what's happening in conversations. Sometimes you just develop those like small talk people skills because that's how I've had to survive when it's like, I have no idea what we've been talking about for the past 10 minutes. So I'm just going to try and figure out how to fit in this conversation again. <laughs> because while this conversation was going on, I like went off on some other tangent and train of thought. So, you know, some of it is coping mechanisms of like trying to maintain a sense of normalcy <laughs> in a conversation that just has made me more of a people person in that, that regard. Some of it is for me, like put whatever weight you want to in Myers-Briggs personality tests uh, and like the extroversion, introversion dichotomy or scale or blend or whatever we're going to call it. Uh, but usually when I take these, I sit somewhere right in the middle between extrovert and, and introvert. So for part of that, like spending time with people is, it, it feeds into, into who I am, right? You know, the concept of like the five love languages, I don't know if that's been talked about at all or if the audience is familiar with it, but the concept is there's roughly five different ways that people speak affection towards one another, like and show they care and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and for me, one of those is, is quality time, right? Just spending time with people is a way both that I feel, you know, cared for and a way that I show that I care for people, right? Is just spending time around them. Because that feeds into who I am and, and builds me up, like being around people and having those conversations both provides the stimulus that like ADHD seeks as well as like building me up as a, a person. And so like, I love that conversational thing. And like that builds into career that way as far as like DevRel, where you want to spend a lot of time listening to what people care about and listening to all aspects of who they are. And like, I can genuinely dive into that because we're just spending time together and like, oh, I actually genuinely I'm building this this relationship with this person just by being there for me anyway. Um, so hearing like what's going well with, you know, for, for Launch Darkly, for instance, like a good aspect of DevRel is not just going out there and talking about our product and getting people to, to want to try it. Like a lot of it is like, hey, what's sucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where are the pain points that you're having? And listening to people's experience and being able to relate to that and understand that and build those connections is really important to the DevRel aspect of it. You know, part of the sort of what manifests outwardly is like, ooh, shiny aspects of ADHD that like jumping from thing to thing plays a role, I think, in thought process for me as well, right? So I will find some connections between things that might not be obvious otherwise, because it just triggers this thought of like, oh, that's kind of like this. Oh, that's kind of like this. Oh, this is kind of like that. And so yeah, I think that's another aspect of, of the superpower as well, is just connecting all these things together and finding the relationships that maybe not everybody does. I think other aspects of ADHD for me, but I think neurodiverse folks in general are having just a really tough time right now. <laughs> I'm having a really tough time coping right now. 
Um, and I think uh, Tiffany Longworth actually put it really, really great. Of We've spent a lot of our lives building up these coping mechanisms, right? Of how we kind of just deal with everyday life while our brains work kind of differently than the world wants them to work. And what's happened right now is we've all sort of been stuck inside and a lot of these coping mechanisms just aren't available right now, right? Like the ability to go hang out with people, the ability for me to get out of my house and go to a coffee shop so that the change of scenery helps me focus on writing, like it's just not available to me. And it feels a lot like being a teenager again and getting sent to your room because you just don't know how to deal. <laughs> and now you have no coping mechanisms and you're stuck in your room and you're just grumpy and mad and like nothing's working. And there's a lot of that struggle, I think, that's that's happening right now. I know for me, whether it's getting out and seeing people or, like I said, that change of scenery, just sometimes I just need to be somewhere else to get work done because it needs to be novel and, and interesting. And I just can't do that. So it's struggling trying to relearn how to work in sort of the worst possible conditions. <laughs> I and I know there's a, to that. there's a lot of folks, especially uh, ADHD folks who working in an office is really useful for them because it creates routine and it creates context switching that's sort of external. Like it's really beneficial for ADHD folks to have external motivations and contexts because executive function, which is largely where it comes from internally, just doesn't work right. And now there's people who work better in an office forced not to go to an office trying to work. <laughs> and it's just, it's terrible. Like I've had the, I've, I've had fortunately two and a half ish years of working from home that I've sort of relearned some of these skills and, and changed some of that. But I can't imagine that if I was working in an office forced to work from home right now, uh, without any of the equipment, without knowing that like, okay, I need a separate space. I need to be able to close the door. I need to be able to shut down such and so like without having that knowledge, I can't imagine like where I'd be. Right. I just probably would not have gotten anything done in the past month. Yeah, I've, I've heard some people discuss and I totally agree that like we're talking about like working remote, like, oh, suddenly a lot of people are working remote. But like what is happening right now isn't really what working remote is like for anybody, even people who have always done it. It's difficult because like I benefit a lot from working from home specifically because of like neurodivergent stuff. And I'm like an advocate for like letting people work from home if they think that that's going to benefit them. And I'm worried that you're going to see a lot of people being like, well, I tried working from home and it sucked. I'm like, no, you tried working during the pandemic and it sucked for everybody. Right, right. right, right. I've seen that that sentiment repeated other places too. I think it's legitimate fear for folks that are advocates for working from home that that will happen. And I, I hope it doesn't. Like, I hope people recognize like these are extenuating circumstances and your experience now is not the same as your experience during whatever normal is. Yeah, I think especially in organizations that have not previously supported remote work or have a distributed team, there's a reason why you don't do that just overnight. You really need to have internal buy-in. You need to have decisions about how the day flows, about how you have meetings, especially across many time zones, and how you keep in touch with each other without that being the only thing you do all day, finding a balance, all these things that are hard and you need to figure out thoughtfully in order to do well and not end up marginalizing the remote workers or having them accidentally miss important conversations that nobody called a meeting for, you know, it was a casual in-office thing. So there's all this stuff, and suddenly everyone's thrown into remote without having had necessarily those conversations or agreements. And for instance, I just see people talking about how they're doing nothing but meetings all day. I've worked remote pretty much my whole career and like at most there was stand up plus maybe one other meeting. I cannot imagine functioning with just constant meetings interrupting the flow. 
every time I have to be taken out of that mental flow, you know, you've thrown me off for at least an hour of having to come back and figure out where I was and what problems I had only half chewed on, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's not just that people are in a stressed place right now, but also we've been thrown into the deep end of quote unquote remote instead of doing remote. And that's so far apart. Yeah, I agree with that heavily. And it is a noticeable difference. So I, uh, the previous company I was at was Elastic, who'd been just, they like to say distributed instead of remote because everyone is. So like, at what point is it considered remote? At what point is the entire company like not working from an office? So yeah, they were always distributed from day one. Like that was their intention was to not worry about where they're hiring people, not force people to come into an office, but to work from where you're, you're comfortable, which is probably helped by the fact they started as an open source project. But the way that business is done in that, that realm is very specific, right? Like there's a lot of intentionality behind communication and how you communicate and like making sure that you check in in certain ways, depending on what you're trying to do, right? And making sure meetings are all Zoom meetings for everybody. And like the meeting calendar is wide open. Like anyone can join any meeting, but you can also opt out of stuff. Like if it doesn't make sense for you or your time zone. And like things are all recorded so that you can check back on that. So for the team that I was in then, which was the community team at Elastic, there were folks stretched from, you know, Pacific time zone to Sydney in Australia, which is like roughly all of them. So <laughs> there's really no good time to have a meeting. Like if you look at like there's some of those internet tools that are like, when's a good time to have a meeting? And they'll be like, you know, green for regular business hours, yellow for like normal waking hours, but like not business hours and like red for everyone's asleep. Like there was never a time there wasn't at least one red block on there uh, on that calendar. And so the, the coping mechanism for, for that was we cycled meetings between uh, US centric and APJ centric time zones, right? So Europe is kind of eh, either way, like it's always either like the beginning or end of their business day. You weren't expected to attend the one that's at 2am for you, right? Like the one that's at 2am for you, you're not expected to go. If you have something really important, throw it on the agenda. Um, but the meetings are recorded, and you can watch it back. And there's extensive agenda notes taken so that you can watch it and get the notes and consume it afterwards, however makes sense to you. Conversely, there's other teams that like required everyone to be there. I know our support team uh, cycled their meetings. They had, I think they had weekly meetings that cycled through, you know, US, EMEA, APJ, regional time zones, and everyone was required to be there. Like, so it's like, yeah, sorry, one of your meetings is going to be great, one of them is going to be eh, and one of them is going to suck. <laughs> like, and that's just the way we have to do with it because of the nature of how our team works, and, and everyone kind of buys into that agreement and, and holds each other up. But I think one of the the key aspects that held that whole coming together was very intentional culture building that happens there and very intentional identity building uh, that happens around like, what does it mean to work for Elastic? What does it mean to be an Elastician? Uh, And there's a lot of thought that's put into that. And there was a lot of now is really difficult, right? Because then like being in person mattered to that, right? And so like flying people out for all hands meetings was an important aspect to keeping that camaraderie, even when you're remote and even when you're separate. Uh, And I think that's probably a really difficult thing people are having right now for anyone who's getting hired right now. Like it's super weird to not have that. Like, so I was actually the first group at LaunchDarkly that onboarded completely remote because we, we couldn't travel. And it was, it was weird. Like I've, I, I worked at a company that was entirely distributed, but when we onboarded, we all flew in, right? Because we got that that connection to like what it meant to, to work for this company. And so now it's really weird to have this slow exposure to everyone and like kind of meet people one on one as you have meetings and like slowly be able to put faces to names. Like that's really hard, and I think it's a, a side effect of just not being able to be present at all. And like that's even a, a key aspect to remote work is have those moments of presence. Yeah, I'm experiencing that too as I'm job hunting. Like I've had a couple 
like interview processes tell me, well, this is the part where we would normally fly you over to talk to you, but we can't. So we'll just have to like get around it. And it's been kind of interesting and weird. So uh, one of the topics that uh, you had sort of previewed in um, in setting up the show was this concept of normalcy theater that people are putting on now during the um, pandemic. So I'm curious, so you want to talk about that a little bit and, and let's see what, uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think this is a phrase of like, that I adopted now like third hand from, from someone else. And I want to say it was Alice Goldfuss that may have like initially mentioned it and then someone else picked it up and I was like, oh, that is a really good term. But the concept is kind of like these groups that are trying to maintain the sense of like everything is is fine and everything is cool that we're working remote now. Um, there's a lot of like, not necessarily a lot of, and not everywhere, but there's, there is this presence of like mandatory fun meetings, right? And, and this excess of meetings, like you talk about, everyone's trying to recreate this presence and be normal about it. And it's just not right. Or like, oh, we're still going to work eight hour days and we're still going to have all our normal meetings and we're still going to be just as productive as we always were. And it's like, that theater of normalcy, right? Yeah, we're just working from home. That's just the normal way we do things. And it really isn't, right? There's so much more happening that is just taking up our brain space that needs to be acknowledged and needs to be understood, right? And uh, we can't always have these meetings that are like, hey, let's all BYOB and have our happy hour, fun time game meeting. Like, you know, sometimes I kind of want to have a meeting and like be pissed off about how things are, right? Like, I just need to be like sad that I can't see anyone. I need to be like angry at the way bureaucracy is handling problems. And I need to express that, you know, and I need to feel that and pretending like we're just going to be happy all the time. And like, what we need to do is cheer up. And that's what's going to get us through it, I think is a is a false step, right? Like it's all of our emotions are important and need to be felt and dealt with in, in their own ways. So I find this really interesting because you mentioned earlier about having all the video meetings recorded. We don't normally have recorded the grouse sessions off in the corner of the office. Those we at least attempt to do privately or take out to a cafe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just something where you're essentially going somewhere other than Zoom and Slack to do those important, necessarily blow off steam or, or process what's, you know, not working so well kind of conversations. How do we reproduce? that aspect of a certain amount of privacy in being a professional. I don't think those meetings have to be recorded. <laughs> for one, uh, the recorded meetings are largely like formal meetings, right? When you're having the actual, like, we need to decide how we're going to architect thing. Like, that's a recorded meeting so that you can see how you had that conversation to arrive at that decision. Like, that's important context to, to maintain. But yeah, you're like, need to blow off steam and have those. It's tough, right? There's not a, there's not a separate space to go to. There's not the coffee shop down the road that you can go walk to with your, you know, closest coworker and, you know, gripe about that particular relationship or particular bug that you're dealing with or gripe about, you know, management not understanding the thing. But I think that's important to still have, right? It's important to have those moments and maybe doubly so when like we're already in the midst of like constantly being upset about things, right? I think, uh, I don't remember if it was mentioned previously on, on this show, but I've heard the concept of like, that weird, uneasy feeling you're feeling all the time right now is grief. You know, we're all sort of dealing with grief right now of not having what we're used to having and, and missing out on a lot. And, you know, there is a loss in all of our lives by being stuck at home and, and not being able to do anything. 
for some of its like actual like our favorite restaurants are gone forever right you know uh, o'reilly no longer has an events team like there are no more o'reilly live events so if that was a thing you look forward to every year it's gone forever right there is a lot of loss that's happening and that like just makes it that much harder to do everything else normally i don't know if that made sense to where we started this conversation but i think it's still important like to make time to say hey let's just do a zoom chat one-on-one and like just I need to complain to you about stuff, right? I think those are still valid things to have and remember that you can have impromptu conversations with people. Uh, it just takes a little bit more work to set it up. <laughs> but I think they're still still important to have. And maybe Slack's not the best place because Slack, but you know, you can take it to your own personal, you know, unrecorded Zoom channel or maybe take it to a private Skype or some other channel where you know you're not being watched or recorded or anything like that. But it, it's definitely important to still have those those connections outside. Yeah, I think it totally makes sense what you were saying about grief. And I think that like also noteworthy to add is like all of that grief about like what's going on with the quarantine and such is on top of the fact that like at this point, a lot of people have been like personally affected by like someone they know who has gotten Absolutely. sick. Absolutely. All of this is like a huge additional cognitive load on top of what we're normally dealing with. So this, this comes through uh, Paul Reed's talk at, at the end of Failover Conf again, because everything's connected, of how we deal. So there's, there's ways that we deal with overload, right? When you have a certain capacity and you're dealing with like, I only have so much cognitive load I can handle, but now I'm dealing with this constant background load always on top of my normal workload. There's different ways we deal with it. One is to like shed load where you just drop stuff and it just doesn't get done. Another one is usually sacrificing thoroughness. So you become less thorough in order to accomplish what you need to do. One is uh, recruiting more resources and uh, the other is shifting work in time, right? So like it's not going to get done this week. It's going to be next week that it gets done. Um, and recruiting resources is like, hey, I need somebody else to help me with this. All of those have different costs and like different trade-offs that happen. Uh, but the interesting point that I think came out of that was the thought that like probably all of us right now are sacrificing thoroughness all the time in our work. And that was an interesting thought of like, that means all of us right now are overloaded, <laughs> right? If we're all probably sacrificing thoroughness or things are getting done later that we normally would have done on time, like everybody is overloaded. And that's an interesting thought process of how we deal with each other day to day. It's an interesting thought process of like how, yeah, this is not normal because we are all constantly dealing with additional load that we normally don't have. And just the amount of like grace we need to extend each other and the amount of like understanding that needs to go back and forth, the amount of like, hey, I just need to take today off because I cannot even needs to be like understood, both like allowed and encouraged. I think going back to this issue of grief. I see that right now on a global level, we have countries where stay at home is almost done or they're even starting to reopen. And then there's regions within countries where that's not at all possible. And we have to look at stay at home as a much longer term thing to be coping with. And you brought up the word coping a few times. And I think that's really interesting because as we have companies with distributed teams or, you know, some sort of simulation of distributed, companies are going to have to deal with the fact that in some regions, people are able to go back to working semi-normally. And in other regions, other employees are going to be still at a completely different place in their ability to be productive and to interact, all that kind of stuff. And how do we deal with that imbalance, we're going to have to come up with some long-term strategies, even just at a plain old business level, forgetting for a moment about the huge adaptive stuff we need to deal with at a much more personal level. How do we accept that this is not something that is a couple of weeks and then we go back to working the way we've always worked? 
and the asymmetry of all of that. Uh, well, I don't have an answer for how, because I think that's, I think we're all learning that. And I think it's different for every team and every person, right? Like this, how is, is the question right now, right? But that's absolutely an important thing to think about, right? That this is not a moment in time that's going to leave us unaffected. And we're all going to go back to normal. I don't think it's ever going to go back to how it was before shelter in place rules were put in place. Like there's always going to be some scar tissue that this event leaves uh, on everyone, especially those who are like professional right now and working and have been directly affected by it. I think it's going to be important to recognize that, especially that like, even though we're going to be able to go back to work, like things have not gone back to normal and there's work to bring us back to a place where we can be as productive as we were again. And there's going to be people that are still being affected by it. And there's going to be people who are affected way harder than I am or than whoever else is like someone is people are going to know someone who died because of this. Right. And other people aren't. And like, that's an important difference to make uh, because those people are going to be close. They're going to be loved ones. And there's like additional, like it's just additional burden to carry out of all of this. And I think thinking that we're just going to go back to normal and everything's going to be fine. And it's going to be like it was before is, is a a misunderstanding of what's happening. (laughs) When you brought that up, it made me realize one of the big tech centers is New York. So yeah, there are different odds in a way, uh, depending on where you work. But I think there'll be a much greater concentration of people in our industry who do indeed have a very personal connection to loss. And how will individuals and companies adapt to there being a tremendous amount of cognitive overload for people in the long term, kind of like after 9-11? People couldn't just move on in a day or a week as if there wasn't right. some continuity of grief and recovery and infrastructure completely gone and needing to just do so much stuff other than simply say, I feel sad. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that's happened is this rapid collision of our personal, private and work lives and public lives all at once, right? We've gone from a place where sometimes even physically could separate who you were and what you did at home from who you were and what you did at work. And now these are all becoming the same thing all of the time. My hope is that that sort of continues to an extent, like that we can recognize as a professional work organization that humans have other things they carry with them into work, right? They are not just who they are at work, at work and can leave everything else behind, right? Like that thing that happened at home affects your workday. And I hope that it allows people to bring who they are with them, right? Like allows people to be who they are and work more holistically and more authentically. Um, and I hope it also brings the like grace from workplaces to allow that, right? And like you said, if people need to work from home to be more productive, like the places allow that because they understand it's a possibility. And if people need to take a day off because they just can't, like that that becomes a normal thing that is allowed in in workplaces. I hope that all of this comes out of it and not like, no, let's pretend it never happened. Let's go back to normal, right? So at the end of the episode, we like to do what we call reflections, which is to talk about the things that each of us has taken away from this conversation. And there's certainly a lot of really interesting and and meaty stuff right up in here. But I think the the idea that's most novel to me that that I'm going to keep thinking about is, is the idea of a software team plays its software just like a music group plays its instruments. And for me, that is, well, like, I think I've been approaching shifting my understanding of teams, you know, over the last couple of years, especially as all the awesome discussions we've had on this show. But like that little conceptual switch, I think is going to be a really useful way of uh, changing the way I think about stuff. And there's actually a great Twitter thread. I wish I could dig it up right now where 
um, someone did a comparison of uh, analysis of Metallica's Some Kind of Monster, the, do- the documentary about creating the St. Anger album, as a metaphor for cross-functional teams, talking about how like each of the members of the group were coming into it with completely different goals. And they didn't communicate about those goals, so they were all making different records at the same time. And it it did not go well. <laughs> and I think, you know, that that's very applicable to, to a lot of the things we do. So I'm, I'm actually going to try and get my whole team to watch that and discuss it from that perspective. The thing I've been reflecting on is something you said early on. Everything has a technical aspect. And this strikes me for a couple of reasons. One being how often we like to, to make the supposedly mutual uh, exclusive categories of soft skills and technical skills. Um, whereas I, I agree with you, it's more like everything has a technical aspect. And on the flip side, everything has a soft skills aspect, a human skills aspect. And you talked a lot about the human skills side at the beginning. And what I, I heard in you today was that sense of balance of both are true, both are part of how we are able to contribute better to code and contribute better to teams. So that was something that I kept on hearing as a through line and I was really interested in and I kept on hearing echoed. Well, this has been a really interesting and great conversation that we've had. I'm finding that near the end of it, my cognitive load is kind of high. That last part of the conversation um, kind of got to me. My husband is actually at the clinic literally right now as we're recording this, getting a test for COVID. So um, I guess what I'm getting at is that I don't really uh, have a reflection. And based on the conversation that we just had, I'm going to say that uh, maybe that's okay. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and that might be my reflection too. I've, I've been, not exactly, obviously, but my reflection being that it is okay to not be getting things done right now, right? And to be taking the time that we need. And I've had a especially starting a new job inside of this COVID situation, I've had a really hard time accepting that like my productivity is kind of terrible and allowing myself to have these moments of not getting things done and allowing myself to have the moment to just be self-reflective and take care of myself in those moments. And I, I think that's my, my biggest takeaway is like, we're all working doubly hard to get half as much work done and it's okay to take a break from that. Well, that wraps us up with a wonderful conversation, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you were able to come on the show. Thanks. Yeah, me too. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to hang out and have Slack discussions with people that listen to this type of show, uh, you can join our Slack group. Normally, we open this up to people that have donated on our Patreon, Patreon, and even if it's only just a dollar a month. Uh, But because things are weird now and because we have a a good job resources uh, segment in our community, uh, we've opened that up to anyone who would like to join. So you can um, DM uh, myself or Jamie or uh, Rain or really any of the hosts on the show and uh, ask for an invite to the community and we'll bring you in there. Visit our jobs channel, a Trello board and other things. Uh, But if you could set up a Patreon uh, subscription, that would be even better because you'll help support the show and support the people that are producing this great work. Thank you. And also, we always look for sponsors. The cost of producing the show is what gets covered. None of us are being paid for this, but we do have costs for editing and transcription 
And we really want to make sure that the episodes can be fully supported and being the best possible and also the most accessible. So if you have a company that's interested, please do inquire via the same ways that John mentioned. And we would love to get you started on that and talk more about what you can do. So we encourage you or your company to reach out. Oh, and P.S., we also do episode discussion on the Slack. So if you have questions or want to chat more with Aaron, that's the place to do it. So, hey, there's one more bonus to joining the Slack. 